Good morning. My name is Wayne Wolf. I am not Michael. He is sitting in the back of the room somewhere, though. Michael, raise your hand. Michael's here. Well, this morning, we're going to take a break from Michael's cover-to-cover series for just this Sunday. I know there's a number of you that follow along with Michael on the In Context weekly broadcast, and he's working through uh, the same series on In Context, edited to fit that broadcast. If you haven't been, I would suggest that you link yourself into that. There's some just great material. But on occasion, what Michael will do is stop in the series and do what he calls a bonus episode, you know, where he kind of pulls away from trying to cover a book in one episode and bring in someone to kind of speak to a specific topic and go down and drill into the details of, of one of those topics. To a degree, we're going to do that a little bit this morning. So we're going to pull back from the series next weekend. Michael will be back, and he'll move on from the Psalms into the wisdom literature in the, in the Proverbs. So look forward to that. But this morning, what I'd like to do with the time we have is deal with a really important topic for us from a Bible study point of view. And that is, what do the New Testament writers think about the Old Testament? How does the Old Testament fit into the New Testament? Well, and why is that even important for us? So this morning, we're going to try and drill down into that. A little bit of Bible study, a little bit of a message. We're going to use Paul's letter to the Romans to just take a snapshot and get a look at that. In a few minutes, we'll end up in Romans chapter 3, looking at verses 10 through 25, where Christy with the kids pulled out verse 23 uh, this morning. So uh, Paul does a really good job there. But before we do that, let me start by just diving in with you uh, with Paul's view. In his letter to the Romans, towards the end, as he is concluding his letter, he makes this statement in chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So I think it's fair for me to say that Paul had an Old Testament perspective. Let me give you another example. If you do have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 24. Let's see what Jesus thinks of that. This is a really familiar passage. Many of you know this. Let me just set the context quickly. Jesus in his resurrected state has has joined a couple of the disciples as they were leaving Jerusalem with sadness in their heart, traveling to this town less than a day's distance away from Jerusalem. Uh, called Emmaus, and, th- and they are confronted by this fellow they don't know, who they then discover is Jesus himself. He spends some time with them, enjoys a meal, has basically the Lord's Supper with them, and then disappears. Now, these disciples have returned from their trip to the disciples in general, and Luke chapter 24, 36 says this, and while they were telling these things, so now they're back with the disciples and explaining what has happened to them, The text says he himself stood in their midst. Now, there's some confusion about this. The description is that they're startled. They might even be frightened. There might be some doubt in their mind about what's going on. And Jesus, standing in their midst, has to prove to them that he's physical. Look at my hands. Touch me. I find it particularly interesting as a food guy. The first thing Jesus says is, how about some food? You know, and they give him broiled fish to eat. So this is the setting. Now, what's of interest to us relative to the Old Testament is how Jesus characterizes his view of what we would call the Old Testament, what the Jews would call the Holy Scriptures to them. 
In verse 44, he says this. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. You know, here's the backdrop to that. There's a little bit of a criticism here, isn't there? Just kind of perhaps if I apply a little bit of tone to it. I've told you these things before. I've said these words to you. Well, what, what are those words? They are this, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here even Jesus says to them, if you want to know me, if you want to understand my role in this redemptive story of mankind to God, you can find me in the law of Moses, be the Pentateuch. Uh, you can find me in the prophet's writings. You can find me in the Psalms. So obviously, the Old Testament is a significant part to us understanding the Bible in its entirety. But one thing that I want to focus on this morning is, so what are the New Testament writers thinking as they are writing their words, and how do they use the Old Testament to, if I could use this analogy, bring their words to life for the hearers? Now, if you've been around church at all, you've heard, you know, topics like that the Bible is inerrant. You've heard it's sufficient. Uh, there's these fancy words that can be used. I have one that I want to expose us to this morning. Uh, it's hard for me to even say perpescuity. Let's practice that. Perpescuity. Who's ever said that word in a sentence? Not me. It's, it's never come from my lips. But it's an important word for us as it relates to understanding the New Testament and the Old Testament's connections. James Callahan has a pretty lengthy uh, quote here that I've captured. I just want to read through it quickly with you to kind of use as a kind of a stable starting point for us in this conversation. He says this, Scripture can be and is read with profit, with appreciation, and with transformative results. It's basically saying here that there's value in reading the Word of God. He goes on and he says, it is open and transparent to earnest readers. It is intelligible and comprehensible to attentive readers. Let me stop there and suggest there's two dimensions here he's starting to develop. The first is the idea of being earnest about something. That means you have to work at it. That you've, you've applied to yourself a responsibility to get into it. And then he says, that's not enough. Even though you want to get into it, you're going to take the time to take it in. Perhaps it's to reflect upon it to consider what it really means. He says, that's what's true about Scripture. It comes to you if you are earnest and attentive. He goes on and says, Scripture itself is coherent and obvious. It is direct and unambiguous as it is written. And what is written in Scripture is sufficient. Interesting beginning thoughts about approaching Scripture as a whole. He finishes it with these statements. Scripture's concern or focal point is readily presented as the redemptive story of God. As the redemptive story of God. It displays a progressively more specific identification of that story, culminating in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of words. Simple view is it builds. But as it builds, the story is about a single thing. It's a person and it is Jesus Christ in the gospel. I'm a simple guy. I wish he would have just started with the last statement. Scripture's clear about what it's about. I mean, that's, 
what we want to take away this morning with that. Well, another piece of just uh, Bible study, if you will. When Paul goes through his description of what the gospel is to the Romans, when he writes his letter, 39 times he quotes the Old Testament in those 16 chapters. Of those 39 times, 13 of them come from the Pentateuch, 9 of them from the wisdom literature, and 17 of them from the prophets. That's a lot. Let me make a suggestion to kind of put it in context for you. Let's pretend you're sitting with your Bible at your desk or your kitchen table, and you got a tablet of paper. And you're reading through the letter of Romans, and all you do is sit and write down on that tablet of paper every Old Testament reference that Paul goes through. Doesn't sound hard to do. Okay, now close your Bible. All that's left with you now is the tablet. I would contend that if you work through every one of those references, you will miss nothing of the gospel and get everything of what Paul is explaining in this letter. He just simply adds a little color commentary. You see, the Old Testament is significant. It is the holy scriptures of God, and it is important for us to understand. You know, I've got this little slide here to say, when you think about the tenets of theology, you know, the letter to the Romans is considered to be the greatest theological work of all time. It, it covers every gambit of what we would understand, of what we believe about the gospel. And I would say this, through his Old Testament references, he answers all kinds of questions. I've got a list here of six. Who is God and what is his gospel? What is it to have faith? How do we come to faith? How can we receive forgiveness of our sins? How about this? How do we reconcile the Old Testament with Jesus Christ? The last one I noted for myself was, who is this Jesus? And why should we look to the Old Testament to understand? All of these questions get answered by Paul in this letter to the Romans. I have one last Bible study thing before we drill down into the Romans text. And that is, this is a pretty wordy slide that uh, Clay is going to bring up. But I think it's worth pausing on for just a minute. Every one of us live life. And as we do, we approach the world with a perspective or a mindset. Now, there's a number of different ways to categorize that or speak to that philosophically. To keep it simple, I'm going to use a very basic, simple way because I'm kind of basic. Three views of the world. Fancy title, secular humanism. Here's Wayne's simple definition. Man is in control. So when we look at the world, some people look at the world and say, we don't need God. There's, man's got it figured out. How about this? We're all going to figure out how to save the planet. I mean, in, the, in our political structure today, it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on, everybody's got the answer, right? Man is in control. Now, I tend to be a math guy. My wife tells me I'm on the autistic kind of screen of things. I see everything in patterns and numbers. So here's my mathematical equation for that. Man, us, we have natural senses. There are things we know just because of who we are. We're human beings. Second, we're able to reason because God set us up separate for reasoning, but we don't know there's a God, so 
we think that we have the answer to everything. Man's natural senses plus his reasoning gives him true knowledge. That's secular humanism. There's no need for God. Well, then there's theistic humanism. Man's still in control, but I got my little friend God with me. And there's a lot of gods. There is not one true God. It does add the possibility that there's this spiritual dimension in life. So I'm in control of things, but I know there's some stuff I don't understand. That's what theistic humanism is. My equation there is it takes the natural senses, adds man's reasoning, stirs it in a pot, and suggests that there's some spiritual stuff going on outside of us. Now that spiritual thing might be indigestion. Or it could be a UFO. I'm not suggesting that it's rational. There is some spiritual sense. Third category that I say is the other predominant one is one that we would all you know, kind of agree to, Christian theism. It's the idea that God is in control. So we go from man is in control to man is in control with some help from his friendly God to God is in control. And this is what we would say is the Christian viewpoint, the, the evangelistic perspective. God is the master creator of all things and man is subservient to God. And without God's intervention in this world, there is no hope for man. That's Christian theism. Now you're wondering, okay, Wayne, why are you messing around with this? Really, I just want to do it for one reason, a warning. And just like Christy talked to our kids about sin, here's a warning that I have about the way we face the world. There are many times in my own life where I look a lot more like a theistic humanist then I look like a Christian theist. I kind of like the idea of having God in my back pocket. Be careful. This is what Paul is going to address in his letter to the Romans. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Wouldn't it be fair for me to use any of Paul's quotes without first establishing why is it that Paul writes this letter to the Romans. We're going to look at just the first four verses of Romans 1 to begin with. Now, let me give you just a little bit of backdrop. For those of you that are Bible study students, you know all of this. This letter was probably written somewhere in the area of 56 or 57 A.D. Uh, if you follow along the Corinthian text, you agree that Paul is in Corinth as he writes this letter. Actually, towards the end of one of the Corinthian texts, he talks about having a person actually writing it down for him, and then as he finishes it, he puts his signature to it and his closing salutations to confirm it is a letter from him. Uh, he's in a home, as he writes this, a fellow by the name of Gaius, and it's likely that it traveled from Corinth to Rome through one of the folks that was with him as he was writing. Most scholars would agree that it was a lady that carried it, so here's one for the women in the room, uh, and this lady's name was Phoebe. She lived in Sancria, so from a geography point of view, it makes sense for her to go from Corinth, stop in Rome with this letter as she went on home to Sancria. So that's a little bit of the backdrop. It's 22, 23, 24 years since Christ's resurrection, 20-some years since Paul came to Christ himself, and in that period of time, he's traveled the Mediterranean region by land and boats, He's had high times where faith has gone out as a result of his preaching. He's been kicked out of towns. He's had huge suffering. 
in his own life. It's been a roller coaster for him. And he talks now to the Romans. Now, at this point in time, Rome is a city of about a million people. Imagine that for a moment. I would put it on the scale of those three things that I talked about as the theistic humanists. There's a lot of gods in Rome. And it just happens that there's this sect that we would call Christians there. So here's the purpose behind Paul's letter, and I want to kind of seat us there so that we can truly understand what he means by Old Testament references. Look in these first four verses with me. He starts by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. You know, one of the things that Paul is pretty consistent with in all of his writings is having to claim who he is. You know, he wasn't there during that three and a half years when Jesus traveled with the original 12 apostles, and he was added later through this miraculous thing that happened in his life on, on his own trip to know Christ. So he's always reminding folks about his position. But that's not what I want to focus on. He says that I'm writing because it's the gospel of God. Circle that in your text, the gospel of God. Here's what I want to suggest that we need to come to grips with as Paul writes. This is not man's gospel. This is not Paul's gospel. Paul declares here pretty clearly this is God's gospel. And there's something important about that if you come at the world that God is in control of all things because it now is his words to us. Look on in verse 2. He says, this gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that the gospel of God came to us through the Old Testament prophets in history? Are you kidding me, Paul? Verse 3. So this gospel of God that comes to us through the prophets, which is the Holy Scriptures, is about a person. He says this gospel of God is concerning his son. His son. It's a personal gospel. It's not an inanimate object. It's not a distant God that you can't know. It's a person. His son. The Redeemer spoken of in the Old Testament who would be the Messiah. The anointed one here representing God. It's his son. Two things he says about his son. He was born of a descendant of David. And it was according to the flesh. So the two things we need to understand is there's a genealogical connection here through David the king who was promised that in the future when the Redeemer came, there would always be someone from his lineage that would sit on the throne. Important point for us to understand that Paul begins his letter with. And finally, he says it's according to the flesh. It's according to the flesh. It's about a person. Verse 4, this gospel of God... It comes to us through the Old Testament prophets. That is the very scripture of God concerning his son, a descendant of David. It comes to us through the power of resurrection. It comes to us. We know it's true. We authenticate it because Jesus came back to life. And there are many, many, many people who testify to that. 
That's how Paul opens this letter to the Romans. So if you're wondering what is he talking about to them, it's all about the gospel. Now, one final thing I'd like to point to you. In this opening chapter in this letter, he finishes his opening comments in verses 15 through 17. And I just want to make a couple of points about that before we go to Romans 3. In between verses 4 and 15, he's talking about himself. He actually makes a comment in verse 11 that he's just longing to be with them. He wants to have this relationship with them. But as Paul often writes, he writes in bookends. He makes a statement, fills it in with some detail, and then reinforces that statement with a closing statement to ensure that the reader understands that he hasn't walked away from his message. So he says in verse 15, For my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. You see that? I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. But that's not the only thing. Look at the beginning of verse 16. Not only is he eager to preach the gospel, he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's eager to preach it, and he's not ashamed of it. Let me just kind of bypass this for just one second. It's one thing not to be ashamed about what you believe, isn't it? I mean, I can come to church on Sunday morning, and I can sing praises to God, and I can suggest that my heart is filled with the hope that Christ is Savior, and I will have an eternity in heaven with God. But isn't it another thing? to have an eagerness to speak about it when you walk out the door? Isn't it another thing? Paul's pretty clear here. He says, I'm eager about it, and I'm not ashamed about it. I think there's just, even in that, a lesson for us. If we just walked away with that this morning is to consider that as two dimensions of our life. We know it. Do we live it? Interesting thing that he says. Now, he once again makes this comment about power. He says it's the power of God for salvation. I could spend much time on these next two verses. I won't. Just make this observation. The word power in the Greek is the word dunamis. We kind of co-opt that word into our language as the word dynamite. So, I I mean, I'm probably on solid ground in saying when it comes to our salvation, God blows stuff up. Right? Think about your own life when you came to faith. He deconstructs who you are, and he gives you a new life and puts you back together as someone else that sees the world differently, that knows God in a very personal and special way. This is how Paul talks about it. Now look at the end of verse 17. He captures all of this by closing with a reference to the Old Testament. And he chooses Habakkuk for his reference. It happens to be chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, where he finishes by saying, but the righteous man shall live by faith. It's pretty close to a word-for-word translation from Habakkuk. Why Habakkuk? I mean, he's one of the minor prophets. I mean, his book is about little. Why Habakkuk? Let me give you just a couple of things to think about because this will play into our understanding of the New Testament writers using the Old Testament. They lived in the first century. They have a first century mind. They think about things relative to their own personal circumstances and experiences and the things that they know of that time. We don't have that mind. It's difficult to step back and understand that. Habakkuk, as a prophet, lived 600 years earlier, long time before this is written. But it's interesting. Even in our contemporary world, that little book, Habakkuk, is the most preserved book that we find in antiquity today through archaeological digs. 
There are more examples of the book of Habakkuk in its complete volume than any other book of the Old Testament. Now, you go, okay, that's cool. Well, here's what that means. It must have been important. They must have used it a lot. Why would there be so many copies of it? So I would contend that one of the things that we have to come to grips with when we take a look at the New Testament and understand the fit of the Old Testament is how natural it was for the people to look to God's holy scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, to understand who God was. Now, we have the benefit of the New Testament because the New Testament writers help us to understand the Old Testament. And that's the point that Paul makes in the way that he writes. Make sense? You can say no. It's okay. Go to Romans chapter 3, and I want to just work through that with you. And we'll do it pretty briefly. I want to take a look through verses 10 through 18 first. Let's just read that. How about we read this together? Let's do that. Let's take a minute to just read this together. Ready? As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. My best attempt at humor, this feels like a sermon that Michael should preach. <laughs> what do you say, Michael? Another cheery sermon by Michael Easley. He and Paul have, have things in common with each other. So let's, let's just take a couple of minutes and drill down through this text. First, let's take a look at verses 10 through 12. Now, I want to make a point about the choice of text that Paul uses here. There are seven references to the Old Testament. The first six are all psalms. All six of those references are psalms that David wrote. That David wrote. So if you want to understand the explicitity of the Word of God, understand this. There's intention in even the choice of the psalms that Paul takes. Remember what he says at the very beginning of Romans 1? The Son of God, descendant of David... So even as he's filling out this letter, he's continually taking them back to where he starts. So he uses David. Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3 is where verses 10 and 11 come. Now I want to, some of this is pretty simple stuff. This is pretty straightforward. Look at how many times the word none is used. Practice your little Bible study tool there. I don't think it takes a lot to catch it. We're all in. Nobody's exempt. None righteous, none who understands, none who seeks for God. How about this one? None who does good. I'm reminded of Christy with our kids. We all have sinned, huh? None. This is the point that Paul is making. Now, at this juncture in his letter, when he left that closing statement in verse 17 of chapter 1 until now, he's been developing this idea 
that there is no difference between a Jew and a Gentile relative to their position before God. He's not suggesting that the Jews weren't the chosen people of God and they're not some special things that God has planned for them, but he is suggesting that when it comes to sin, humanity is infected with this and that there's no reason to think that God has exempted one people group from that condemnation. So he, he emphasizes this idea of non. The non don't know righteousness. They don't know what a holy God is. They don't even understand who a holy God is. And if that's not enough, he says they don't even want to know God. None seeks for God. This is what he is laying out to all mankind of which we are part. Actually, Psalm 53, if you were to go back there and take a look at it, it's got one of those little scripts at the top of it that kind of defines the psalm. It says masculine psalm. It's the idea that these psalms were written as a frame of reference of sadness. You know, almost this idea about being sick because this circumstance exists. And it's meant to be contemplative, that we take it in and think about it. I would observe that in our society today, even for us Christians, it's easy not to think about our sin. It's really easy to compartmentalize it and put it aside. Paul says we'll have none of that. We're all, we're all stuck with this issue. Psalm 36.3, he takes to define verse 12. Now, I want to digress for just a second and, and just give you a little bit of kind of idea of how this works. In the New Testament, when an Old Testament is referenced, it's usually done one of three ways. It can be word for word, so the New Testament writer will actually take the script right from the Old Testament scripture and it's word for word as it was in the Old Testament Scripture. Sometimes, it's kind of paraphrased. It is the Old Testament Scripture, but it's got some, you know, little things in it that doesn't change its meaning, but maybe contemporizes it to the writer's language. And then sometimes in the New Testament, it's a reference. It's not really word for word. It's not paraphrased. It's just, it's, it, it kind of makes you think about an Old Testament text. Now, in those first two examples that I mentioned, and in your Bible, most translations will capitalize Old Testament references when it is that way. So it's easy. When I said to you, get your pad of paper out, go down through Romans and make a list, all of Paul's, when I say 39 quotations, there is more of the Old Testament in Romans, but the 39 quotations I'm referencing are the ones that you can find capitalized. So this is a little bit of that kind of a backdrop. Psalm 36.3, here's something that I would just suggest to you as I even look at this next chunk and we work through the Psalms. Let's remember what Michael taught us last week. The Psalms were well known. They were songs. Many of these were put to memory. They were spoken of in the normal course of life. They were even sung. Not a little ditty here. If you are a Bible study student, if you want to go off on a little rabbit trail, go back on your own to each of these psalms that I'm laying out before you and go read the first verse of each of those songs. Let me digress for a minute. I don't know how you are with singing. I'm not a musician. Good for you that I don't sing in front of you. But you know what I am? I get caught in the lyrics. 
how is it for you? Here's how it is for me. I have a tendency to remember the first line of a song. I might get like halfway through the second line and then I'm lost. But I remember the first line. If you were to go back to each of these psalms and read the first verse of each of those psalms, I don't think it's an accident. Every one of these psalms focuses on the glory of God, his long arm that reaches man and doesn't lose him, and it praises him for who he is as the redeemer and saving one. They all start that way. But what does Paul do? He jumps into the middle of these things and goes after man. Because you don't get to know God's glory if you don't know your sin first. Does that make sense to you? So this is what I'm working through with you. Let's go on to the next, Psalm 5, verse 9. That's verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. Now, if you lived at this time and you had an Old Testament mindset, you'd know that if you touched a grave, that made you unclean. If you want to go study that, look back in Numbers chapter 19, and you can learn all about the filthiness of an open grave. By this point in time, the idea of an open grave, it basically became a metaphor for human depravity. That's kind of what point it would try to make to us. Here's what the beginning of verse 13 says, and that's in and the beginning of verse 9 says in Psalm 5, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. And then it finishes with their throat is an open grave, which is the part that Paul captures here in his Roman letter. There's nothing about them that's reliable. They don't even speak truth. The next is verse, the second half of verse 13. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. That comes from Psalm chapter 140, verse 3. Let me illustrate what I said earlier about how each of these psalms begins by drawing us to a holy God. Here's what Psalm 140, verse 1 says. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Wait, let me get it. None of us are not evil. God, rescue me from all of us. I mean, that's effectively what the psalmist is saying here. He goes on and he says in verse 1, Preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts. Paul is describing in innate detail sin. Just sin. Nothing more than that, but everything, because we can't get away from it. How does he define it? I, let me just give you just a simple definition from my perspective. He says that we're hypocrites. All of us are. That we're deceivers. All of us are. And in fact, if we were to look closely at these texts, we'd have no choice but to conclude that there is no escape. Now Paul abruptly leaves the Psalms and goes to the prophet Isaiah. And this is Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8 that he now speaks from. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Here's a thing to consider. Let's just take those three pieces apart. Their feet are swift to shed blood. I mean, that's basically a statement that we're proactive 
in our sin. It's not accidental. It's purposeful. We as sinners are proactive, and we physically move towards it. Second thing he says is that destruction and misery are the result of it. They are in the paths. How about this for a big, bold, happy idea? In our sin, we bring pain and suffering to other people. And sometimes it's really significant. It really hurts other people. Paul says it hurts so much that it brings destruction. It brings misery. The third thing he says of Isaiah, the path of peace they have not known. The path of peace they have not known. I don't often think this thought, but how about this? In our sin, we don't know what peace is. We're so focused on ourselves and what we want and how we want things done, to even consider another person isn't part of the program. This is the tough part of Paul's storyline. Now, he finishes with one final reference to the Old Testament, and it is Psalm chapter 36, the second half of verse 1. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The beginning of that verse says this, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. The point of this entire verse taken from this psalm is simple. God isn't even part of the thought process. Now we've moved from theistic humanism all the way back to all that matters is man is in control. And this is how Paul ends with his declarations. Here's my simple equation. Hypocrisy and deception, they are who we are. Mix it up in a little bowl. Add a little wicked intentions to the hypocrisy and the deception, and you find the condition of man. This is sin. Now, I don't know how you are, but sometimes when I see everything kind of packed in my face, I better understand it. So I've created this little word cloud that's coming up on the screen, and all I've done is taken every one of those phrases from those psalms about sin and put them on this screen. Here's sin. It's full of cursing and deception. No one understands God. None of us even seek Him. Destruction and misery are what we bring. And we've all turned aside from God. Sometimes when you just kind of look at it in its ugly, brilliant self, it has a bigger impact. This is why coming to faith in Christ is so different. Now let's just move on from there. I want to stay in Isaiah 51 for just a second, though, to illustrate one other thing. How Paul takes the Old Testament and blends it with his answer to the issue. So in Isaiah 59, if you were to look back at the entire section of prophecy here, what we've charted off as a chapter in Isaiah, you'd see this. Uh, Paul quotes verses 7 and 8. But if you look in the center of Isaiah 59, in verses 2 through 19, is this picture of sin. And it gets into some pretty granular detail. I would just observe, even in verse 12, the prophet says, and our sins testify against us. It's basically, there's no secret sins. Everything's on the table. And it's glaring beauty, and you can't hide from it. But if you understood this entire prophecy, that depth of sin is captured within the glory of God. In verse 1, 
Isaiah 59 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. It's actually a prophecy that begins with an acknowledgement that there's hope. Then it gets into this dreary picture of sin. And then the prophet ends in verses 20 and 21, wrapping it up with these promises. He says in verse 20, And a Redeemer will come to Zion. There will be one that attacks this sin issue. And this one will attack it to those who turn from transgression. That's a picture of repentance. So there's some picture here, even in the the prophet's words so many centuries earlier from Paul, that there's a solution to this problem called sin. Verse 21, the prophet says, My spirit which is upon you, that's God in you, and my words, that's God to you, shall not depart from now and forever. There's an eternity solution here that's spoken to. I would claim that it's a picture of salvation. Let's just flip over, go back to Romans chapter 3, because in verses 21 through 25, Paul basically concludes in the same fashion that the prophet Isaiah does in chapter 59. Look in verse 23 first. This is the verse that Christy had our kids speak this morning. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's man's condition. It's identical to what Isaiah says in chapter 59, verse 12, and, the sins, and our sins testify against us. It's the condition of man. What's packaged around that for Paul first is this idea of faith. He says, how about this, Romans 1, verse 2, witnessed by the law and prophets. He points back again to the Old Testament, even in his answer to the folks. And he says, here's what we need to know through the prophets, that we get the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We get the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The answer to sin is clearly a response to the Messiah. Once we bypass verse 23 and go to verse 24, how does that happen? Paul says we're justified as a gift by his grace. We are justified as a gift by his grace. Let me come back to that, but look at verse 25. How does this justification happen? It requires Jesus' blood. It says a propitiation in his blood through faith. And with that, what do we get? He says at the end of verse 25, we get our sins passed over. Our sins passed over. Let me paint this picture for you. The word justified is a legal term. Uh, Takes you to the idea of a judge. But in this case, the judge does not have a jury. He doesn't need a jury. There is just a judge. And if you step back and think about what Paul is painting here, Paul is the prosecutor. He's in the judge's courtroom. It's the judge, Paul the prosecutor, and us. And we stand before a holy God. And Paul is the most accomplished prosecutor you have ever met. Because he has convinced the judge that there is no hope. That sin has overtaken us, and this is the end. But here's the picture that is painted about the judge. The judge is sovereign. The judge has no limits associated to whatever decree he can make. And what does the judge do? 
What does our holy God do in light of our sin? He provides a solution. He sends us his son. He sacrifices of himself. We are not, our sin doesn't just go poof. There's bloodshed for us. The judge stands before the accused and doesn't declare that they didn't sin, that we didn't sin. He declares, because he is sovereign, that he makes us innocent of our sin. We can't earn that. What does Paul say? It's a gift. He says, justified as a gift. This is what Paul outlines in Romans chapter 3. Since I've poisoned you with my silliness of word clouds, here's a word cloud built around this. It's a story of hope, or if you choose not to have the word hope in there, it's a story of faith. I've done the same thing here. I've just taken the words from Isaiah 59 and from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, and I've just put them on this one screenshot with this idea of hope and faith. I hope it's encouraging. It's a reminder to me that it's a gift by His grace. That it's witnessed by the law and prophets in the Old Testament. That it is the very righteousness of God revealed. And that, yes, the Lord's hand does save. You see, it's through God alone, by Christ alone, through faith. This is what Paul tells us. I know you're you're taught you should have three, four, five, if you're Michael, maybe eight or ten practical applications. At the, that's where you laugh, practical applications at the end. I don't have any, but I do have something to say to you. The writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, says this. We, we, we know it well. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the assurance of things hoped for. Does that sound like Paul for a minute? Actually, there are some theologians that would credit the writing of Hebrews to Paul. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. There is a mystery to this gospel that isn't revealed through a billboard. It's not part of a television commercial. Can't even be written in a book but it's revealed in your heart because it's a personal relationship that you get when you know Christ. I just want to leave you with that thought that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. If you're at a place where hope seems dwindling for you, be encouraged. God is on his throne. And the writer of Hebrews says this about that, and then I'll finish. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down 
at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Think on Jesus and be encouraged.